He who believes on the Son has everlasting life. But he who does not obey the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. Even so, we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by Jesus Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word this morning together, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance on our time of study. Father, we're so thankful for your word that our Lord prayed that we are sanctified by your word. We're sanctified by truth, and your word is truth. Father, it is truth because it originates from you, was breathed out by you. Your character makes it impossible for it to have error, and that you oversaw the process in such a way that you prevented the writers from writing error. Father, we know that over time that that there are many interpretations that are wrong simply because we are fallen, fallible human beings. And often we put our own agenda into the word and interpret it the way that we would like it to be, interpret it in terms of our own experience rather than taking the time, the diligence to dig into the text, to really understand what it says and what it means. And Father, too often we're willing to skip along the surface without coming to a real knowledge of what you're communicating to us. Father, we pray that we might never lose that hunger, that desire to dig into your word, to have a zeal for your word, to yearn for your word, that not that we might be proud of our knowledge, but that we might grow more closely with you, that we might walk more closely with you, and that we might, through your word and God the Holy Spirit, be transformed into the image of Christ and that his character will be displayed in our lives that we might glorify him. And this we pray in his name. Amen. Okay, this morning we're continuing our study in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. And the topic today it continues what we've been studying on the ascension and the session of Christ, which is what is at the heart of of Ephesians 2.6. We've been looking at background scriptures from the Old Testament so that we can understand the significance of this phrase because Paul just uses it, throws it out there as if everybody knows. And of course his original audience knew because he had taught them well. But we live in a world today when we're not taught so well, we're not as familiar with scripture, and we need to see how this fits within that web of revelation that paints for us a complete picture of God's plan and purpose for history and his plan and purpose for each one of us as we fit within that overall view of history. In Ephesians 2.6, we read that we were raised together and he made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 1, we're introduced to this reality that we have been raised and seated together with Christ. We refer to it again when we come to Ephesians 4, 7 through 11. It is a foundational thread that runs through all of Ephesians. And it comes out of that opening statement that Paul makes in Ephesians 1, 3, that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And Paul, of course, can't go through every one of those in Ephesians, but he goes through quite a few of them. And understanding how this is a blessing for us is one of the things we're going to focus on this morning. 
As we have looked at this, I've pointed out in the past that being seated together in Christ relates to his current session in heaven. Session being an old English word or Latin word that indicates being seated, that he is seated now at the right hand of the Father, and this is mentioned and alluded to in numerous scriptures in the New Testament. Therefore, we see that as it is spread throughout many different writers and many different uh, books of the New Testament, that this is foundational for our understanding of the spiritual life. So we're looking at what the Bible teaches about the session of Christ. And as I've gone through this by way of introduction, we've been addressing the question of God's plan because something happened after the crucifixion that was unexpected on the basis of Old Testament revelation. Never before did God reveal that there was going to be this intervening age that would come before the kingdom. And that was because it gave Israel a chance to accept the offer of the kingdom when Christ came at the first advent and their rejection of him as the king and their crucifixion of him that kingdom was postponed. So there's an inter-advent age called the church age. It's not that God went to plan B. It was always God's plan. He just didn't reveal it to us. That's why it's called a mystery. It is previously unrevealed uh, truth in the scripture. So uh, exploring this, the whole issue of the ascension and session of Christ, is what helps us to understand the role of the church in this church age and the role that God has for each one of us as members of the body of Christ, the church. So we're looking at the purpose of the ascension and this present church age, and we've looked at background scriptures to understand this from the psalm. Psalm 110, the most quoted Old Testament chapter in the New Testament. Verse 1 and verse 4 are cited numerous times. Verse 1 has to do with my Lord, the Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is applied to the ascension of Christ at the, in Acts chapter 1, where he ascends to heaven and then sits at the right hand of the Father. Verse 4 says that he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, Therefore, as I've pointed out, as we talk about the fact that we are seated in him because he is the high priest, we have a priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek as well within him, and that relates to our priestly minister ministry as members of the body of Christ. Then briefly last time I talked about Psalm 68, 18, I'll wait to get into that when we get to Ephesians 4, as I said last time, but that's how, that is the background for what Paul says there about Christ's ascension so that he can give gifts to men. He applies Psalm 68:18, changes a couple of words, and then applies that to the distribution of the leadership gifts in the church. So we'll cover that when we get there. And then I went to Daniel 7, which is where we'll begin today. And I looked at Daniel 7, 13 through 14, because this comes from a prophetic view of what happens when the waiting period is over with, as the Lord told, as the Lord told my Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah in, in Psalm 110, 1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So that's the waiting period. Daniel 7 shows the end game of that waiting period and what happens, and then we'll follow that up with what we learn from Psalm 2, which will be the focus this morning, showing the Messiah's victory, his military victory over his enemies. I was joking with a couple of deacons this morning that I've got to quit studying, I thought we'd get to Psalm 2 last week, and I finished up with about eight pages of notes last week and went in this morning and 
printed out 15 pages of notes when I finished studying, so I don't know if we'll get through all of it this morning, but I'm looking forward to a time when I can really get into Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3, which is what we'll do probably when we finish finish up with Samuel. Some of these psalms are just absolutely profound, and as I've been studying them more and more over the last 10 or 15 years related to all of these issues that you and I have talked about many times related to messianic prophecy, there are just so many things that are going on that that weren't even evident at all when I went through seminary. A lot of people get the wrong idea about seminary. They think when you go to seminary, you learn everything. You don't. What you do in seminary is you get a foundation. The word seminary comes from the root word for seed. Seeds are planted. You learn some things about Greek and Hebrew. A lot of people never look at their Greek or Hebrew texts again, but if you use it, and the more you use it, the better you become. I don't think too many, unless they're just gifted in languages. I am not. People think I am. I'm good at Greek exegesis because I taught first-year Greek about five times through the 80s, and then I taught it, taught something about it every year when I was working with the WHW ministry from about 2000 to 2009. And when you do that every year, you finally begin to get some of these things through your, uh, through your head, and you learn some principles. But that's what's important uh, in order to develop some of those exegetical skills. They don't just happen because you've got a THM and you finish four years at seminary somewhere. And the same thing with Hebrew, Hebrew grammar, and learning a lot of, lot of these, these things. As we look at Psalm 2 today, I'm amazed as I look back through my notes as to how much I didn't know when I taught Psalm 2 in the 80s, when I taught it in the 90s, when I taught it a decade ago, and even in the last few years, because there's so much that's coming out, especially in these areas of the Psalms. And one of the things that has happened is, we're beginning to realize, and more and more scholars are coming to understand and write about this, that from the time that religious liberalism came on the scene at the, uh, towards the end of the Enlightenment period, we're talking the 1700s, and what is called critical scholarship, which denied Mosaic authorship, denied divine authorship of the Old Testament, interpreted uh, Jewish religion within the framework of the evolution of religions and many other things, that a lot was lost. And, for example, when I was going through seminary, uh, we were not taught that there were very many psalms that were truly written as messianic prophecy. Now, it was cloaked in different language because everybody wants to say that most of these, some of these passages are prophetic, but when you get to the nitty-gritty, what they were saying was they were talking about something that happened historical, and the New Testament writers took these things and, and applied them to Jesus. But what we're learning, what I'm learning, and what several people have been writing about, is that actually these psalms were written to be solely prophetic. In fact, there are some, I'm not sure if I can go there yet, there are some who think that every psalm is ultimately about the Messiah, that the whole of the Psalter is about the Messiah. And even if that may be overstating it, I think a vast number of psalms are about the Messiah. They were written about the Messiah. They're not written about some historical situation in the life of the writer. They are written about the Messiah. They are predictive of the Messiah. And that all of the Bible, the Old Testament, is messianic in some sense. It all points, and much of it is prophetic or the types are intended to teach about Jesus. So we'll get into that when we get a little more into Psalm 2. So we looked at Psalm 110.1, sit at my right hand. The Messiah ascends, sits at the right hand, a position of honor, a position of prestige, but it is not a position of action. And in Psalm 110.1 uh, and then in verse 4, 
it's connected to his priesthood. So from that passage, we learned that the future Messiah is fully divine because Yahweh, who is God the Father, says to my Lord, who is the authority over David, and David's the highest authority on the earth, God's anointed king in Israel, so this my Lord must be divine, as, as I pointed out. Second, this future Messiah, king, is at the right hand of God the Father, which I just pointed out. And third, that the future Messiah king is awaiting a future victory, which is affirmed in the New Testament in Hebrews 10.13, from that time waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. He is waiting. He is not pictured as a king in conquest. He is portrayed as a priest advocating and interceding for his people. And that is indicative of our role as we are seated in him. Psalm 110.4 points that out in terms of his priesthood. And then we went to uh, Daniel 7 last time looking at the fact that the future Messiah King will eventually defeat the enemies of Yahweh. But now he is waiting for that time to come. So, during the intervening period, we're seated with him. We too are awaiting the giving of the kingdom. We're awaiting the end of the church age, but in this church age, we know that we are to be prepared. What we are to be about in our spiritual life is training. We are to be trained so that when that time comes, we will come with him and we will form the cadre of the leadership of the messianic kingdom. Some will have different positions, higher positions. Some will have lesser positions. Some may have no position. It's all predicated upon how far we advance in our spiritual life, our capacities uh, spiritually in terms of knowing, knowing the Lord. And uh, therefore, God will base our positions on what we have, how we have grown in this age. This clearly denies the interpretations known as amillennialism and postmillennialism. So second point we've seen is that our role is related to our royal priesthood in him, and so we carry out these, the mission of the Great Commission, witnessing to others, evangelism, teaching, prayer, uh, ministry to one another in the body of Christ. Now let's look at Daniel chapter 7. I want to add a few things to what I said last time. Daniel chapter 7 is one of those great chapters in Daniel that outlines the future of God's plan for Israel, the nations surrounding Israel and Israel. It is parallel to the image that God, I mean, that God gave Nebuchadnezzar in a dream back in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel 2, it's the image of man. You have the head of gold, the torso uh, of silver, etc., and all of that depicts the kingdom of man in some sort of valuable uh, metal. Here the kingdoms of man are portrayed as vicious, voracious, destructive beasts. There are four beasts, four kingdoms. The final kingdom is... Uh, portrayed as a unique, distinct, horrible beast that has uh, ten heads representing ten kings. So we see this described in at the end results, what I looked at last time in Daniel 7, 13, and 14, at the end of the time period where the kingdom of man has dominion, it will be brought to an end. This is what happens at the end of the session when Christ is given the kingdom. So Daniel 7, 13, and 14 states, I, that's Daniel, was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. So he's looking, he's seeing heaven. He is seeing the Son of Man who is the Messiah. He's not God the Father. The Son of Man is a second divine personage who is human as well. He comes with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and they brought him, that is, these angels surrounding the throne of God, brought him near before him, the second him is God the Father, then to him, that is, the Son of Man, was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So this is that final kingdom. It is the kingdom of the Messiah, the kingdom that is predicted in the Old Testament in numerous passages where the ruler is the greater, what we call the greater son of David, not one of the human kings that come from David's lineage, but the one toward whom they all point, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the future King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But I wanted to point out a couple of other things related to the context here. As Daniel is looking at this historical scenario in the, from the past, and he sees it as completed history, this is what will happen. It is history that has not yet occurred. He says he saw this fourth beast who's dreadful, and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. That takes us back to the image of the man that that uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw in Daniel chapter two. And we have the the legs of iron, and then the feet, which are a mixture of iron and clay. So this fourth beast relates to that ten nation confederacy we call the revived Roman Empire. The ten kings are related to the ten toes. Uh, of that statue. And so he says that this this kingdom, and this is not talking about the historical Roman Empire, but that revival of the Roman Empire that is yet future, that it is devouring, breaking in pieces, pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. The residue of what? What remains upon the earth, and especially that, I believe, in context, he's assaulting the saints. So he's talking about the residue of God's people that are left during the tribulation period. It was different from all the beasts that were before, and it had ten horns. And then Daniel says, I'm considering the horns. So this takes some time. He's thinking about, well, what does horns mean? What's, what's going on there? And there, then while he is contemplating the ten horns, another horn, an eleventh horn pops up and uh, in the midst of them, and this little horn then attacks three of the others and pulls them out by their root. Now, those ten horns represent ten kings, ten kingdoms, ten nations, and then you have the rise of this other power, the little horn, and the little horn apparently has to conquer three of those ten horns and subdue them. And then he is described as a man who speaks pompous words. He's filled with arrogance. Now, this isn't normal, everyday pride. This isn't getting up in the morning and getting dressed and looking in the mirror and being pleased with how you look and how you dress This isn't going to work in accomplishing some task and being somewhat pleased and proud of how you did, that you accomplished it and you did a good job. This is hubris. This is an arrogance where you look at yourself as the replacement for God. This is Satan's sin. It is is arrogance on steroids, okay? This is the idea here. This is the man who thinks that he can do everything that God planned and promised to do and bring peace and harmony to God's creation. In verse 9 we read, Daniel says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. So this precedes the verses that I read at the beginning. And it is a similar picture to what we read in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. These thrones would relate to the uh, uh, church age elders, I believe. And the, it doesn't talk about the church. It doesn't define it that way. It just uses a very uh, generic language. So it's not talking, I think it's talking about the church in the future, but that's not distinctively church language. So when I say the Old Testament doesn't talk about the church, it's clear language, okay? Understand that. I think that when we get to the period in Revelation 4, we see the 24 elders, and those, I think, uh, are the thrones that he sees here. But they have no idea. Jews would look at that and read it as as the thrones uh, related to Israel. The Ancient of Days took his seat... 
His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. His wheels were burning fire. So this is God the Father. This is the same image that we have in Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 10 of the throne room of God. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Then in verse 11, he says, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words. So the first two verses I read gives us the scene of the beast that's ravaging the earth. The second scene looks at what's happening in heaven. And then this goes back to what is happening on the earth. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words, which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain. That's the destruction of the fourth beast and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. This is just, it's not talking about an individual, it's talking about the the destruction of the kingdom of the Antichrist. Then we'll skip to the interpretation that comes later in that chapter, where Daniel says, I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. This is what's going on during the tribulation period. And the term saint simply refers to those who are sanctified. It can refer to Old Testament saints. It can refer to tribulation saints. It can refer to church age saints. It is not a word that is specific to any one group. So he's just saying that he's making war against those who are believers. And in this case, we know that they would be tribulation saints. And he prevails against them until, there we have that until again, just like the Messiah is to sit at the Father's right hand until a time word, until you reach a point when something changes. For the Messiah, it will be the time when he will be given the kingdom. For the arrogant one, for the Antichrist here, it will be when God has given him uh, all of the time that he's going to Uh, going to have and uh, this until is when the ancient of days comes and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the most high so now he is going to God is going to answer the prayers of the saints at the end of the tribulation and this is when he will send the son to establish his kingdom and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the most high And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Wow, that's future. They're not possessing the kingdom now. That means amillennialism is dead wrong. Postmillennialism is dead wrong. All of this, we are in some form of the kingdom now. It's uh, uh, now but but not fulfilled. It is dead wrong. We are not in any form of the kingdom not already but not yet the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom that is when the messiah will be sent then we get the interpretation the ten horns or ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom that fourth kingdom and another shall rise after them he shall be different from the first ones and subdue three kings that's already i've already talked about that with the three horns that are plucked out that's the interpretation Verse 25, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and law. And then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and a half a time. That's three and a half years. A time is one year, times is a dual. It's two years, that's two plus one is three. And a half a time, three and a half years And so this is talking about the second half of the tribulation. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. And it is in that framework that verses 13 and 14 takes place when the Son of Man comes and the Father gives him dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And verse 27 repeats that in terms of the interpretation and says then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people the saints of the most high his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him 
So what we see is Psalm two, Psalm 110 talks about the Messiah ascending and seating at the right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Daniel 7 provides for us that picture and the time frame that this happens at the end of the tribulation period, what will be revealed in Daniel 9 as that 70th week in Daniel's time frame. We've gone through that uh, many, many times. And so at the end of the tribulation, this is when the kingdom is given to the Messiah. Not now, uh, not in this church age, but at the end of the tribulation. So that military victory, the details related to that, are further given to us in Psalm 2. So turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 2, where we will see the writer of this psalm depicting for us the coronation of the new king who will establish his kingdom. This portrays for us this coronation event. Now, I want to give you a few points by way of background and introduction to Psalm 2, but also this applies to the Psalms. And some of this is going to be a little new material, some things for you to think about, but some things that help us understand the Psalms. Too often the Psalms have been presented as just individual books, as if they exist in isolation from all of the other other psalms. This would make it uh, distinct and unique of all of the all of the scriptures. It is also thought that by many people in the Reformed camp that James is the same way. James is often said to be like the Proverbs, and so all these different sections in James have nothing to do with each other, and that's garbage. James has a perfect unity that is described by, uh, I believe it's one seventeen. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. There's your outline right there. Everything fits together, and it's all about perseverance. The Psalms are also that way. So the first point that you should remember is that the Psalms were written over a lengthy period of time. But when they were compiled, it was with a order and a purpose. Okay? So the oldest Psalm is Psalm 90, written by Moses. So this is written sometime around... Uh, 1446 to 1406 B.C., sometime during the period of the wilderness, wilderness wanderings. There are also psalms, several psalms, that were written after the exile. Now, the term exile refers to that 70-year period after Israel is defeated uh, in 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar in his third invasion of the land, and this time he destroys the temple, destroys Jerusalem, and he takes uh, most of the Jews out of the land and takes them back to Babylon in captivity. He had taken earlier captives back, Daniel and his the friends, Azariah, Mishael, were taken back uh, earlier. Uh, in probably the 605 captivity. So they were taken back uh, at an earlier time. We know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by their Babylonian names. So this is 70 years, and then after the Babylonian, cap- the Babylonian Empire is defeated by the Persians, then it is Cyrus then who issues a decree to allow the J- Jews, along with all other indigenous people to go back to their native homelands, all other ethnic groups to go back to their native homelands. And so he sends the Jews back in approximately 536, and they come back over a period of years in several different groups. Okay, so you have Zerubbabel bringing back the first group. Later you have uh, Ezra bringing back a couple of groups, and finally Nehemiah bringing, bringing a group. These weren't large groups. Uh, if you total it all up by within a hundred years, they only had about sixty or seventy thousand Jews returned to the land. So it's a small group. It took quite a while to rebuild the temple. They started when they first went back, but they got discouraged and they gave up. And so you have what is called the post-exilic prophets, Zechariah and Haggai and Malachi, are written to to uh, Zechariah and Haggai primarily to encourage them to rebuild the temple. And then Malachi comes along 
later because they're abusing uh, various aspects of worship, and so that's a, a corrective book. So what we have is this period of time after the return that is the period that we refer to as after the exile. Ezra, who is a priest, establishes uh, basically a school of the prophets. And it is believed, I think accurately so, that it is at that time that the canon, that is the organization and structure of the Old Testament, is finalized. And it's at that time that the Psalms are organized and finalized, and I believe this is all under the uh, leadership, the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. And there are lots of technical reasons for this that I'm not going to take the time to go into now, but there, there are a lot of reasons for this, so that these Psalms were written individually. David writes Psalms. Others wrote Psalms. They were part of the... Uh, music ministry, the music worship of the of the of the temple, but following the exile, they are put into this this final form that we have now. So much of what I'm going to comment on in terms of this introduction is just a summary of some of the conclusions because the details are rather extensive and and. Uh, rather technical as well, so I'm just going to summarize a few things. But this is not anything new. This isn't something I dreamed up. This isn't something the 20th century or 21st century scholars dreamed up. Actually, evidence of this goes back to the Septuagint, and it goes back to the Talmud at the time and, and to traditions that were present at the time of Christ. The organization of all of this had already taken place, of course, at the time of Ezra, which is about uh, the time of uh, 400 to 500 B.C. That's when this organization takes place, and so it, it comes forward. But the organization is important. One of the things that I learned uh, just recently is that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are are connected to one another and should be read together. I'm going to give you a couple of uh, reasons for that. But there are about seven or eight pairs of psalms that are the same way. They are designed to be put together and to work together where they have some uh, a connection between them that's indicated by the words that are used in the Hebrew. Now, in some cases, you'll have a repetition of the same word. In other cases, you have a use of words that may sound like they're not homonyms or homophones, but they have the same consonants. Maybe they reverse them or something, but they create word plays so that if you really know your Hebrew and you're reading it in the Hebrew, you catch these things. It's, we have the same thing in English. If you go back and you read Shakespeare... And you take your time to really study through uh, the plays or you study through the sonnets of Shakespeare. He uses all kinds of word plays like this to bring people's attention to certain things that are being said. He uses puns and he uses various, uh, various forms of words that would have been recognized by his audience. Uh, we're a little removed from Elizabethan English, so we don't necessarily catch these word plays and these puns and things that are used. So we miss some of that. But his audience has caught these things. Some of them are rather bawdy. Some of them are not. Some of them are humorous in many different ways. Uh, but the scriptures use this to bring out and emphasize certain points, and we just miss it in translation. And so that's why it's important to to study in the original languages and to pick up on some of these things. And thankfully, we have a lot of men who are tremendous scholars who get this because it's you know three three or four years of Hebrew in most seminaries isn't enough to get you here. You have to really learn to embed yourself uh, in into into the languages. So. Um, we lost this. We lost this idea of the unity of the Psalms due to theological liberalism. Trust me, liberalism, whether it's theological or whether it is political, is an assault on truth. It destroys truth because of its presuppositions. And it certainly did this in theology. Coming out of the Enlightenment, putting man at the center of the universe, 
you had the rejection of divine authorship, the rejection of Mosaic authorship, the rejection of Davidic authorship, the rejection that, and the ideas that Moses and David never, uh, never even uh, actually uh, lived. But that was not the ancient view, the view that dominated before Christ, after Christ, through the through the Middle Ages, and so you find that the Septuagint for example, recognizes that there's something distinctive about Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, that they are connected to each other. All of the other psalms in the first three books of the psalms, books the psalms are divided into five books, all of the other psalms in book 1, book 2, and book 3, with the exception of 2, have a superscript, have a title. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 do not. If you put a ti- were to have put a title at the beginning of Psalm 2, it would break up the flow as you read from Psalm 1 into Psalm 2, and you miss some of these linguistic connections between the two. Unfortunately, most of us have been taught that you can just pick up one psalm and read it, and because we don't know the Hebrew, we miss these connections uh, anyway. So what we see here is that in these in the psalms, like any other book, you have an introduction and a conclusion. In the Psalms, Psalm 1 and 2 form an introduction to the entire Psalms. Psalms 149 and 150 pick up and tie a bow around these these themes and conclude the book of the Psalms. And you have various lines of evidence to show this interconnection and interdependence between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, which are pretty interesting and fascinating, and I'm trying to bring out a couple of things that are just related to our particular study. One, for example, is that Psalm 1 1 begins with the Hebrew word asherah, blessed is the man. What are we studying in Ephesians? We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ, blessed is the man. Who's the man? Now, most of us have read this as blessed is anyone. That is not how it was understood originally. This was understood in the Talmud. This was understood by early Jewish commentators as messianic. This is a contrast between the man, who is presented as an ideal man, who is um, who is shaped completely by the law, versus the ungodly. So we have this this um, framing of Psalm 1 and 2, blessed is the man, and then you get to the end of Psalm 2, in Psalm 2.12, it repeats the word at the end, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. This frames these two psalms. They are talking about the ultimate blessing of the messianic ruler. We also see other words, for example, in one one it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor uh, stands in the path of sinners. Now, the word there in Hebrew is the word derek, so you miss the connection in English. Derek is the word for path or way or something like that. But that word derek occurs again in two, at the end of cha- uh, Psalm 2 and 2.12, says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. But perishing also connects the two psalms. For example, at the end of Psalm 1 we read, for the Lord knows the way, the derrick, the path of the righteous, but the way, the derrick, the path, the way of the ungodly, what? Shall perish. You get to the end of chapter of Psalm 2, verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. These are just some of many, many little intricate lexical and phonological hints that these go together. Another connection comes at the end of verse 6 where it says the ungodly. This is a Hebrew word, Rishayim, and it sounds like Roshu Goyim, which is used for the uh, for the people, the, the nations, 
rather, in the first stanza of verse 1. So there's this, they sound alike when you're reading them in, in Hebrew. And so as you finish the first psalm and begin the second psalm, you notice that there's these two phrases that sound alike, and that's meant to echo uh, one, one another. And again, there are many, many other intricate details that um, I'm not going to take the time to go into. In uh, one of the technical articles that I read on this, it's uh, interesting just to show you that I'm not making this up. I haven't had some sort of of great insight or uh, uh, breakthrough or anything like that. This is a result of lots of different scholars who've done a lot of different work Alan Ross brings out a lot of these same points, and another scholar who's retired now uh, from a professor at Southeastern Baptist Seminary wrote in his paper at near the conclusion, he said, Paul the Apostle apparently was reading these two psalms in this manner. Now, he's not saying Paul was reading the psalm when he writes Ephesians, but he said this is his understanding of these two psalms from his extensive training uh, as a rabbi. He was reading these two psalms in this manner as well when he attributed to believers inside Jesus his privileges of sonship, a seat in heaven, and a worldwide inheritance in Ephesians 1, 3, 5, 10, 11, 15, 19 to 22, and 2, 6. This is tremendous stuff. You know, I start reading through this, and it just, it just opens up more and more layers of the scripture that continue to confirm and reconfirm uh, one another in many different ways. Psalm 2. Oh, there's another aspect. I didn't create a slide on this that's also fascinating. There are intentional links between the language of Psalm 1 and Joshua 1, 8 and 9. The man of 1 through 3 delights in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 1-2. That language reflects and echoes the language of Joshua 1, 8, and 9, which is talking about blessed is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord. This is directed toward who? toward Joshua, Joshua the general, Joshua who is a type of Christ in his military victory over the enemies of God. Joshua is going to only have two glitches in the way he carries out his conquest of the land. He is a man who meditated on the Lord, and as a result of his dependence on the Lord, he has military victory over the enemies of God. So there is an intentional connection here between Joshua as a type of the Messiah and the man of Psalm 1 who delights in the law of the Lord. There's also an intricacy in the fact that he states in the law of the Lord and in his law, that second his is capitalized in your Bible and it probably shouldn't be because it's talking about in his law that it is the law of the man. He meditates day and night. God's law becomes his law so that they become interdependent. And the result has something to do with worship because the language that you see in Psalm 1-3 is language that, that reflects verbiage that you find in Genesis chapter 1 when it's talking, 111 and 29 it's talking about the original paradise and the trees and the watering that goes on in the original paradise that same language and multiple words are picked up in Ezekiel 47 which describes the restoration of the temple in the messianic kingdom as the uh, restoration of paradise and this language is only used in these passages. It's distinctive. So you find distinctive language like that, it connects the dots for you. This isn't just happenstance. You know, God has a plan and a purpose, and it pulls all these things together. So let's look at, 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 um, at Psalm 2. It's one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. 
It's uh, cited in a number of places in the Gospels, Matthew 3.17, Ecca, and and the parallel, uh, in the synoptic parallels in Mark 1.11 and Luke 3.22. It's cited in Matthew 17.5, and also in the parallels of Mark 9.7 and Luke 9.35. It's quoted in Acts 4.24-26 and 13.33, and then in Hebrews 1.5, 5, 5, and Revelation 2.27. And it's alluded to at least five more times. John 1.49, Hebrews 1.2, Revelation 12.5, 19.15, and 19. That tells us something, that this is really important. I mentioned last time that when I took a Christology course in seminary, that the methodology of the course was very good. Tommy Ice and I were sitting up on the front row and we started off looking at these Old Testament messianic passages in order to understand that foundation for who Christ the Messiah was going to be. And we spent a lot of time on Psalm 110 and Psalm 2. And ever since then, I've just it, it, you realize there are some chapters in Scripture that are more significant than others in some ways, and this is one of them. And so this is a passage that talks about uh, the future, the future Messiah, and this was a view that was domin- that dominated even Jewish interpretation up until approximately uh, 1,000. And even Rashi, who was one of the uh, um, Jewish rabbis that significantly impacted a shift, taking away a lot of messianic prophecies, understood the background of this of this psalm in something of a messianic way. But he applied it too much to an original historic situation with David, which shifted the focus away from a true messianic uh, messianic emphasis, which is something that has why there's such a battle and such a problem uh, today. In Psalm 2, it destroys amillennialism. And I keep bringing this up because this is the dominant view that's out there, is that we're in the kingdom. And you go to a lot of different churches, a lot of different Christian communities, and everything's about doing something for the king and doing something for the kingdom, and it's just terrible theology. We're not in a spiritual form of the kingdom. We're not in an already not yet form of the kingdom. And so this destroys it. Christ is waiting for the kingdom to be given to him, and then he will rule. When we look at the psalm, we've got a chiastic structure here. Chiasm, that spells C-H-I-A-S-M, a chiasm is a literary device for how you organize things, and I've used a red X here with dotted lines on one side. The Greek letter X, which is the first letter in the word Christos, is called the letter chi or key. So when you use this device, what it does, it's like the letter X and the left side of it uh, will go in. You can have, you know, as many, I've seen extensive chiasms that have 20 different levels. But this is simple. It has the first two points, the third point uh, mirrors the second point, and the fourth point, fourth section mirrors the first section. And so it reflects the left side of the letter uh, key or chi, which is why it's called uh, a chiasm. In the first three verses, we see the kings of the earth are rebelling against Yahweh and his Messiah. In the next three verses, we see the response of Yahweh and his messianic king. And then as a echo of that, in the third section, in verses 7 through 9, we see the relationship of Yahweh and his sonship decree about his Messiah. And then the last part, we see that the kings of the earth are warned to submit to the Son of God for blessing. So let's just quickly go through this. I'm not intending to spend a lot of time dealing with every detail. We're just hitting the high points. It starts off, why do the nations rage and the people... Uh, plot a vain thing or why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing the word translated uproar are 
rage, is an interesting word in the Hebrew. It's the word ragash, which has the idea of conspire or plot. It should be translated something like, why do the nations conspire or why do the nations rebel? They are rebelling against God. It is talking about the kings of the nations, and they are plotting against God. An alternate interpretation in the Holman Christian Study uh, uh, Standard Bible says, why do the nations rebel and the peoples plot in vain? In vain means it's in, in, it's in total futility. They'll never accomplish it. They're trying to do the impossible. They are so divorced from reality. Once you reject God and you rebel against him, you're living in a fantasy world. And unfortunately, it's a problem with much of the world today. They've created a fantasy world and built upon that where they're so out of touch with reality that you can't even have a conversation with a lot of different people. Uh, This word, ragash, that is used here to describe the plotting is only used in this passage in the uh, Hebrew Old Testament. However, a cognate of this word is used in the Aramaic in Daniel 6, 6, 11, and 15. There it describes the enemies of Daniel who are conspiring together against Daniel, and they're going to Darius to get him to pass the law. No one can pray to any god. They can only come to him, and if they uh, are caught praying to any god or beseeching any other authority uh, than the king, then they will be thrown into a den of lions. And so that uh, that, that gives us background for understanding this, a conspiracy of wicked people. So the psalm begins with this idea of the kings of the world that are united. This is globalism. This is internationalism. This is the opposite of what the left wants to say today is the evil racism of nationalism. Well, nationalism was invented by God. Nationalism came into existence because of the evil of internationalism. It occurs in Genesis chapter 11. All of mankind speaks one one language, and they conspire against God under the leadership of a man named Nimrod. And so they decide they're going to build this uh, tower to the heavens. What they're trying to do is establish themselves, and, and some of you said they're trying to build a mountain high enough that if God brings another worldwide flood that they'll survive it. And no matter how high they build it, God's still going to have to come down from heaven to look at it. Now, the God who comes down from heaven sees what they are doing and says, this is evil. I'm going to confound their languages. Now, it's intentional. By separating them into languages, he's separating them into races and he's separating them into nations. Deuteronomy talks about the fact that God uh, set the boundaries of the nations according to their languages. I'm not making this up. In Acts 17, Paul says the same thing. God establishes the boundaries of the nations. To say that you want to do away with borders is an attack on God. You're, you're playing into the conspiracy of the kings of the earth here in Psalm uh, 2.1. The reality is that when God, God confounds the language of the people at the Tower of Babel, which is the whole, the whole world. All human beings now have mu- these multiple languages and will divide up into multiple races. Now, we know that a lot of evil has been committed in the name of nationalism. There have been wars. There have been world wars. There have been tribal battles. There's been... Just think through all of history, the massacres, the violence, the loss, the death, the famines, all of the evil that has occurred because nations are fighting against nations. Don't you think God knew about that in eternity past? God knew that when he divided the nations, I mean the, the human race into nations, that it would result in a lot of horrors. Guess what? God realized that if they stuck together and they had one language under internationalism, it would be worse. It would be more evil. It would be more destructive. 
And that's what happens in the tribulation period under the internationalism, under the globalism of the Antichrist. This is why uh, believers who understand the Bible must stand against the UN. They must stand against these international things like the League of Nations. They must stand against uh, all of these things. Eventually, they're going to take over. We live in a world today where so many corporations have become international. They don't want any wars. And so they have another agenda other than protecting the uh, the rights and the, the resources of the nations. They they want globalism. So it's it's very very difficult to live in this mess. And and you see the news media and so many others, and they're they're promoting internationalism. But that's what we see. We'll have to come back and finish the rest of the psalm next week. But that's what we see here: the globalists. The internationalists, the kings of the nations in the tribulation period raging and they're plotting emptiness. It's vanity. It's useless. It won't work. And God is going to eventually establish his response. We'll come back to look at this next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity today to study your word, to see prophecies of the Old Testament to understand how how profound they are, how we see in some senses foreshadowing of these fulfillments in our world today. The prophecies will not be fulfilled until the tribulation period in the end, but we see we see how the stage is being set today. Father, there's a desperate need for us to fulfill our priestly function, to be priests, to be witnesses, to carry out our responsibilities as prayer warriors, praying for one another, praying for the nation, uh, praying for missionaries, praying for pastors and churches, teaching the truth of your word, interceding is part of our priestly ministry. This is part of our Lord's priestly ministry as he sits at the right hand, at your right hand, even now. Father, we pray that as we study these things that would open the eyes to many, recognize the need of a Savior, the need, the recognition that there is only one basis for real stability and hope, that the nations are constantly conspiring against you and bringing chaos and all manner of misery upon the human race. And the only solution is Jesus Christ. And the only solution is your word that brings true peace. And we will not see true peace until Christ, the Prince of Peace, returns to establish his kingdom. Father, for those who may never have trusted in Christ as Savior, may they understand that it's not about what they've done. It's about what Christ did. It's not about their sin. It's about Christ's payment for their sin. It is about trusting in Jesus, believing he died for them, and that by believing in him, they have everlasting life. Make this clear to those who need to understand the gospel. And, Father, we pray that you would make the rest of us understand more fully our responsibility even now as those who are seated in Christ in the heavenlies. And we pray this in his name. Amen.